You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist podcast, ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com journal to read the articles and ASCP.com podcasts to listen to more author interviews. Welcome to the Senior Care Pharmacist podcast. This is Donna Bartlett, your host. Today we have with us Dr. Shannon Rice. Dr. Shannon Rice is from the University of Texas at Tyler, the Fish College of Pharmacy. Welcome, Dr. Rice. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here and for the opportunity to speak with you. I'm just, it's an honor. Excellent. Thank you. So today we're speaking on your publication, and you co-authored this with Dr. Nina Kim and Dr. Charlotte Farris. And we're talking about the topic of your publication is anticholinergic cognitive burden in older people over acute admissions. This can be found in the Senior Care Pharmacist, February 2021 edition. So I just want to really, you know, just jump right in and talk to you about What about anticholinergic burden and what are its effects in older people? If you could just give us a little bit of background on that first. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this this research study really centers on anticholinergic burden. And and what that means is it's kind of a broad umbrella term used to describe the risk of uh, negative clinical outcomes associated with anticholinergic drugs. And anticholinergic drugs are those drugs that block acetylcholine at those muscarinic receptors. So because of the ubiquitous nature of uh, muscarinic receptors throughout the body, this can lead to a bunch of potential side effects ranging from dry eye to dry mouth, constipation, urinary retention. And what we kind of focused on this article with was uh, altered mental status. And so if you look throughout the literature at anticholinergic burden, it is kind of this larger, broader term, and it's been categorized a million different ways by a bunch of different people using various scales and, and calculations. Um, but essentially, it's, it's targeted at seeing how much risk is an individual at for anticholinergic adverse drug events. And it helps to quantify that in the clinical setting. So in your introduction, you're talking a lot about the recognition of this anti- of the concern of anticholinergic burden. But you notice, too, that the clinical practice has yet to change significantly, even though there is a lot more information about anticholinergic burden and especially older adults. Then you concentrate even further on the acute setting, which I just think is fantastic. So can you elaborate more on this? Can you talk a little bit about the changes that you think are needed and maybe some of the barriers that you've seen? Absolutely. And I think this can be kind of summarized as this main problem, which is that we're lacking medication changes that may be indicated to home medication regimens or chronic medication regimens in the acute care setting. And they may be indicated because there was an acute change. And the first people in the line to see that acute change are going to be the people on the inpatient side. And so I think especially in this age of hospitalists and people who are kind of siloed in this acute care setting who may not have um, relationships with these patients in the ambulatory side, that there's this concern and and what it truly is, is clinical inertia and hesitancy to alter home regimens, even though an acute change might warrant it. 
So the change that I see needed is really to empower these providers in these hospital settings to feel comfortable with changing chronic home regimens if there was a status change for that patient that makes them indicated. And there's tons of barriers to clinical inertia. I mean, it's a multifactorial kind of ball of knots, really. But I think some of the main ones that I'm familiar with and that I've seen in practice and that I've seen described are, you know, this concern about stepping on toes of other providers and this territory concept of, of, you know, quote unquote, owning that patient. Also, just an awareness that it's a problem and that maybe these medications are linked to this new acute presentation. And then kind of the shirking of responsibility, this guys that their primary care provider is going to handle it when they see them. But especially in the older adult population, this is concerning to me because older adults are not, you know, discharged home the majority of time. They're discharged to a long-term or an acute care rehab. And depending on how many times they bounce back and forth through the hospital setting, they may not see their PCP for another couple of weeks or potentially even a couple of months, which could leave this problem lingering unnecessarily so. And so I think that's kind of this main problem that we saw going into this study that was just confirmed on the back end as well as this clinical inertia in the acute care setting. For sure. And and I don't think it is necessarily just acute. I know that that's what you highlight. Oh, for sure. I think we see it even between specialists and, and PCPs too. And it's also been 100%. documented in studies. So great that we have that up front, that there are barriers. And I know you're talking about prescribers, but also patient barriers too, and those that, um, you know, family and caregivers. For sure. So it really is a thing that we need to be looking at as people age and age with medications for sure. So you identified this problem and you and your co-authors studied this anticholinergic burden for older adults in the acute setting. Can you tell us more about the study, your ideas and how this all came about? You know, honestly, this idea came about while I was on my P4 rotations. (laughs) I was on a a six-week rotation that was, you know, geriatric-specific in a long-term care setting, somewhat unique in the sense that I wasn't serving in a consultant role as a student at that time. It was more so like we were clinical providers assigned to this one facility, and we would follow up on the, the residents at that facility daily. And so we would see these people coming from our hospitals in the setting and, you know, it was due to a fall or they're altered and, and we would look at their medicines and be like, well, they're still on the medications that would predispose them to this. I don't understand if that was what they were admitted for, why we didn't make any interventions as, as a healthcare team before they got here. And as I learned more about the, the acute rehab and long-term care settings, I realized that, you know, this is a good day when we can intervene within 48 to 72 hours of a person arriving to one of these types of settings, as opposed to potentially on, you know, if it's just a consultant pharmacist, they may not get to that individual potentially up to a month. So, It made me want to know how big of a problem this actually was. Because anecdotally, we could say, yeah, this is kind of common. But I realized that, you know, unless you got those hard numbers, no one (laughs) is is likely to listen to you. So that's what I moved forward with. And this became my my first year residency project. So it was completed in that first year of residency. (laughs) That's fantastic. So one thing I noticed in your inclusion and exclusion criteria is that you excluded people who might have been admitted due to motor vehicle accidents. But 
uh, to me, isn't this a concern? Because if it's an anticholinergic burden and there's some cognition issues that you were concentrating on, wouldn't that be an area where, you know, we would see people in traffic accidents? So could you just explain a little bit as to why you might have excluded that group? Absolutely. And I, I agree with your line of thought there that if you, you have a person driving who's cognitively impaired, their risk for accidents goes up. So the reason we excluded these was essentially we were trying to rule out trauma confounders for fracture and isolate fractures that occur due to falls from standing at height or just falls because we have a tighter association with anticholinergic burden and falls throughout the literature compared to just fracture. And so we kind of wanted to tie the fracture to those falls for an added level of, you know, specificity, hopefully, in the data. But I will say that at least in our population, motor vehicles accidents ended up being a very minor exclusion criteria. I think we had one or two individuals excluded for a motor vehicle accident. And then we had another individual had a fall from a height that was excluded because it was considered a a traumatic fall at that point. But I agree with the thought process. And I think the other thing that makes it difficult in this type of research is we, we never really know who is at fault for the accident. So it's like, was this a drunk driving accident? Was this some out of the blue accident, or could we pinpoint that it was a cognitive impairment of the driver at that point? And so in order just to reduce those confounders, the the decision was made to exclude them. Sure, that totally makes sense. So let's talk a little bit more about the results of your study. Yeah. I found that it was really interesting how, of course, you separated out the various stages of our older adult lives. Yes. (laughs) The change or lack of changes really in the 85 and older group was quite eye-opening to me. So if you could just share a little bit of what your results were and your findings, especially in this older adult group, that would be great. Fantastic. Yeah. I think overall, just to kind of give context for it, we saw anticholinergic burden decrease by about 0.1 points over admission. And that kind of broke down to about 22% of the overall population had decreases in their anticholinergic burden over their stay, and about 14% had increases, leaving about 64% to have no change. And in this oldest old population, which we considered 85 years or older, which wasn't a a small part of our population, we had an older cohort for sure. So this made up about 46% of the group we were looking at uh, of total. There was stark differences in their intervention rates. So for this population, we saw about 16.5% had decreases in their anticholinergic burden and 19% had increases. So not only were you less likely to get your burden reduced over the admission, you were also more likely to get it increased, um, which was really concerning, especially, you know, we went back through the data and we're like, was there just nothing to intervene on? Were these just medicines that we couldn't really do anything with, but we found that 65-ish percent of people who had a clinically significant anticholinergic burden, which was defined by the creators of the scale that we used as uh, three or more, had no change or increased at the time of of discharge. So it it wasn't that there was an area for improvement. It's just that it, it wasn't being done, especially for this oldest old. And the theories for that could be you know, boundless potentially that it, maybe it's a more vulnerable population. They have, you know, the, the patient has less healthcare literacy and, and doesn't know to talk about these things. Or if, you know, this is a population that may be caught in those transitions of care more frequently, that they just don't have a fantastic history. But I mean, again, a very multifactorial and 
at this point, just hypothesized reasons as to why that occurred. That's fascinating though, because like you're saying, these are the folks that are probably more affected by anticholinergic burden as well. And yet their anticholinergic burden is increasing. So when they leave, right, whether it's to home or rehab or something, their likelihood of readmission, I would think, also increases with that. I know that's not necessarily your study, right. but it would be concerning. Yeah. And I mean, we, we looked at all-cause readmission in 30 days just from the whole cohort. We didn't take out those subgroups by age, but we did find that about 28, 29% were readmitted for the same diagnoses that we were screening for. So altered mental status that wasn't due you know, to any of those confounding factors like an infection or an electrolyte abnormality, fall or another fracture. And so this problem is potentially continuing in real time and, and especially for that, that oldest old population. So you mentioned a little bit about the tests that you used for Mm -hmm. anticholinergic burden, and there's a number of them available. Could Mm -hmm. you just explain a little bit about the different tests and maybe what, you know, why you focused in on this one particular test for your study? Sure. And I'll start by saying there is a myriad of them. I mean, internationally, there I think there's over 20. And that was the last time I checked, you know, in depth was in um, probably 2019. So I'm sure that there could potentially be even more. We honed in on the anticholinergic cognitive burden scale for a couple of reasons. First, we that scale was created by an interdisciplinary team that was looking at primary literature associated with cognitive impairment. So it was anticholinergic effects that weren't necessarily just the dry eye or the constipation, but really those central anticholinergic effects, which we valued specifically for this study. Um, We also liked that it was very clinically friendly. So for example, one of the scales commonly used in research is the drug burden index or the DBI, and that's an actual calculation and you need to know doses and how many times a day they're taking it in order to to quantify their anticholinergic burden. And for us, we wanted something that could be clinically realistic to implement when you don't have all of that information and you need something to make decisions more quickly. (laughs) We thought, well, it'd be silly to use something that you can't actually use in clinical practice to help you out. And further, just that anticholinergic cognitive burden scale was created with the intent to identify medications that may benefit from therapeutic alternatives. And we just found that that was the most clinically relevant for us at that time. It is amazing how many different scales there are. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's mind boggling when you think about it. But it's a mind boggling problem too. It's, um, for sure. You know, they're involved with so many medications that common medications too. So, and that brings me to my next question is, were there certain medications that you found to be more common, you know, to be the culprits in increasing the anticholinergic burden in this particular population that you studied? Yes. And we often found that you were kind of in one of two groups. You either had a bunch of kind of one point value medications, which to us were maybe less clinically relevant. So the clinical relevance of three one point medications is not the same potentially as one three point medication. And I think that's an important concept to hold as you're reading the the study. But very commonly for the one-point medications, we saw things like metoprolol, furosemide, ranitidine, that in likelihood their clinical relevance is probably small. And I feel like most people would agree on that. And this is compared to our three-point medications, which 
we all know and love to hate. So most commonly at the start of admission, we saw oxybutynin. And then most commonly, and this is kind of interesting, at discharge, we saw quetiapine. And it jumped from being number five on the most common used to number one at the end of discharge, which begged the question for us, you know, is this a treatment of an acute delirium that is not being appropriately stopped at discharge? Is this just continuing on? And then when they enter that care setting of, of uh, rehabilitation without kind of the context for starting that medicine, is that now stuck? <laughs> so I think that that's a great idea for future studies is where the heck is this quetiapine coming and going, <laughs> if it's going at all, um, which would be the biggest concern. Mm, really interesting for sure. And isn't that true too? I mean, it's not just the anticholinergic burden, but we see that with other medications too, where things might be needed in the hospital setting or acute setting, and then it it does stick, as you say, with the patient needlessly and unnecessarily for some time. So yes, I think that that is concerning for sure. And it's not that they don't need it right when they leave. They might need it for a couple more weeks or, you know, for certain medications, but yes, does it really need to be long-term? Right. And without that context, usually, I mean, it's been in my experience that my hands are typically bound because the next provider is like, well, I don't know when that was started or why it was started. I think we need to continue it. And so it just becomes this the snowball, the slippery slope effect of (laughs) prescribing. (laughs) For sure. So the other thing, you know, just trying to wrap this up a little bit, I know that we're running close to our time here, but just would love to hear from you about what do you think is in the future? What would you like to see moving forward? And what changes do you think we should be thinking about, especially, you know, if we're thinking about pharmacy students too, and medical students, as well as those already practicing, what should we be considering? I think that that's a great question. I think kind of in two parts. So our our practitioners that are already out and going, I think that we have to work together to attack this clinical inertia, really in all care settings, but especially for older adults in that acute care setting, and, and empower providers to feel comfortable to do that, whether that's through education, whether that's through having a pharmacist on their team, which I would love, you know, let's put more pharmacists yeah. out there uh, or whatever that looks like. I think that is also a great area for research and maybe even some qualitative research as to what kind of drives that notion of clinical inertia in this setting. I think for current students, both pharmacy, medical, and nursing alike, it really is about emphasizing deprescribing as much as we emphasize prescribing. I think we teach people all the time, well, this is how you know that this drug is indicated. This is how you know when this is time to treat. And the converse of this is why you know it's time to take it away isn't as emphasized as heavily. And so I know that in my own teaching, you know, I'm the hand that writes the prescription or knows when it's indicated also knows when it's time to stop. So I think emphasizing that throughout the curriculum could help us, you know, Im- improve these little G geriatrics everywhere, knowing that we're at the deficit of the big G geriatrics at this point. Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. It was such a pleasure sharing your study and just speaking with you. So thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate that so much. I think the pleasure was all mine. (laughs) Thank you. So just to recap, today we had with us Dr. Shannon Rice. And Dr. Rice, has her research is published in the Senior Care Pharmacist, February 2021 edition. 
And I also always like to take the time to thank our listeners and to all those who care for our older adults. It's so important and your work is so important. This is Donna Bartlett, your host. We hope that you stay safe and be well. Thank you for joining us today. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.